Artificial intelligence is here. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Daniel Lopez. This is the AI Education Conversation, where we explore the opportunities, risks, and the impacts of AI across education. Let's jump in. Happy May, everyone. Today's a big day. We made it. Today's the National College Enrollment Deadline for those of you familiar with the work of College Access and supporting our high school students. All across the country, students are going to be making their big after high school life decision today, whether they want to go to a four-year school, two-year school, want to go to into a different state. Today's the big day where they get to make that choice. I want to just start off this episode by giving a special shout out to all the students, educators, families, everyone who worked so hard to make today happen. And I wish all of you the best of luck and students in particular in making your big decision as to what you want to do with your life after high school. Remember that regardless of where you go, learning is a lifelong pursuit and you want to do the best you can to remain curious, to take risks, to learn from others. And that doesn't just happen in the classroom or during college. That happens for the rest of your life. So in the spirit of today, I was thrilled also for to be able to have a conversation with my friend and colleague, Adam Seidel, who is the regional vice president for One Goal, Massachusetts. And he also has a lot of experiences in college access and experiences across the education sector in Massachusetts and experiences as a school leader. So before we jump into a really awesome, great conversation with Adam, I want to start off as I always do with a few updates in AI. So I'm going to be closing the loop on some of the big threads that I've shared some updates on over the last few episodes to just give you some pretty interesting developments that I think are giving us a good sense of where we're headed here. So first and foremost, in the last couple of episodes, there's been this theme around using AI tools in music and in images to generate content, right? And for the most part, we know, especially as as it has related to music, there's been a lot of big record labels taking down AI-generated songs. They've been striking it as copyright. There was a recent development, though, that is going to add a pretty interesting chess piece here to, to the board. So Grimes, famous musician, she added to the debate when she announced on Twitter that she's going to be splitting 50% of her royalties on any successful AI-generated song that uses her voice. She mentioned that this is the same deal she would use with any artist she would collaborate with. And she also said, feel free to use my voice without penalty. I have no label and I have no legal bindings. So this was one of the first major artists who basically showcased an embrace of AI uh, rather than pushing back, back against it or being frustrated that their voice was being used for songs. And clearly it's going to provide opportunities for her and for the folks who are really talented at using AI tools to make money alongside her. So it seems like this could create what we talked about before, an opportunity or maybe even a whole new field that ends up starting to generate here where artists may come out and say to folks who are very talented that, hey, if you can create some great opportunities, you know, you're welcome to, to leverage this and we can partner together. And so I could imagine this emerging market of AI producers who maybe out there looking to capture on some of these opportunities over the next couple of months here as maybe other artists or bands come out and decide to do this. On another note, AI tools are also being used in political ads. No big surprise there. I mean, we've spent a lot of time talking about AI imagery. I know I've mentioned my concerns around the fact that I think AI images in the future, with how good they are, they can be used to try to present misinformation and share things that aren't true and try to get a rise up or impact a certain situation. And that's exactly what happened last week. 
Last week, President Biden reannounced his election for the 2024 presidential election. And immediately when that happened, the Republican National Convention ended up releasing an ad that was 100% generated by AI. And it actually shows AI-generated images of President Biden, uh, Vice President Kamala Harris at an election day party, followed by a series of imagined reports about international and domestic crises that the ad is ultimately suggesting that would follow in a Biden victory in 2024. So ultimately, I think, I, I mean, I, again, anyone who saw some of these in images knew that this was going to happen. I'm very concerned about this on either side, regardless of your political beliefs, because I'm concerned about the fact that AI tools can be generating images, can be generating audio, that in situations where, again, it just didn't happen. And, you know, we all saw and in the last few years here related to social media, we saw what happened with Cambridge Analytica, and I can very much see a Cambridge Analytica type scandal in the future being developed here where you have organizations that are very skilled and sophisticated using AI tools that are going to generate content to influence voters, right, on, on, on either side of this way here. So I do think as best as possible, we need to try to figure out how we can build in guardrails. Like I know this started to happen towards the tail end of the last couple of years on many social media platforms as it related to some of the ads that people were seeing. Um, and I don't know that we've totally figured it out, how to do this effectively on technology. And ultimately, you know, people are going to think what they want to think. But as much as possible, we need to try to control this because I can very much see this continuing to happen. I think this is just the start of this where we're going to see AI continuing to generate images that never happened, that involve people doing things that never happened. And we need to try to police that as much as we can because it can have tremendous impacts on very high stake situations such as political elections. The last update I wanted to share, privacy updates with ChatGPT. So over the last couple of weeks, you know, I mentioned how they were banned in Italy and some corporations have also banned ChatGPT along with other AI chatbots. And ChatGPT though recently is actually back online in Italy. And you might be asking yourself, well, why is that? Why is Italy now allowing them to operate back in the country? Well, it's because ChatGPT in the last week, they've introduced some pretty significant policy control features and privacy control features. A couple really stood out to me when I was looking at it. The first was that now any user that is using ChatGPT, when you log in and if you start a series of questions, you can actually choose to turn off chat histories if you like. Essentially what that does is if you turn off the chat histories, it's going to delete and wipe that conversation as soon as you log out of your account or close the browser. But what it's also going to do is it's not going to save any prior information in your account about that conversation. And it's also going to prevent that information, that input for being used in AI's training data. So anytime you log in, when you start a chat, you'll notice there'll be an on off button and it'll say next to chat history and training, which essentially allows you to do so with any conversation you choose to operate with. ChatGPT is also going to be creating a business plan for professionals who need more control over their data, and it won't use any data for training by default. So overall, I mean, OpenAI is clearly trying really hard to make meaningful changes around privacy in a very short turnaround. You know, I'm, I continue to wonder how privacy tools are going to impact the quality of these data responses. I think some of the, the value and the strength in having some of these big chatbots is that obviously it, it has so much information and content on so many different things. And if a lot of users now decide to opt out of not including train, uh, data in the training bot, I'm just curious to see how that improves or impacts, I should say, the quality of the responses. Overall, I mean, it's a good step forward, I believe, as well, because all tools do need to have privacy 
I think guardrails built within them, especially if they're if we're going to, to allow these tools to be in our schools and in our school districts in any type of systematic way, there are going to need to be some strict privacy regulations that have to happen. And this feels like a very clear brick laid towards that path of being able to accommodate it in a very big way there. All right. Well, that being said, let's move on to my conversation with Adam. I've always enjoyed conversations with Adam. He's a coworker and he's also a friend. And I'm very grateful to let you all in on some of the conversations that we get to have with each other all the time. This conversation was an absolute treat and it features quite a few nuggets on the college enrollment experience, our experiences working with students and just what we observe about the college and access and matriculation experience in general. Um, and also talks quite a bit about some of the opportunities that we've identified that we think AI can really help with as it relates to this college financial aid experience that many students are experiencing and will be making decisions on uh, on May 1st. So as always, let me know what you think about today's conversation at the AI Ed Combo on Twitter and let's jump in. Yeah, so welcome. I feel like we we knew this episode was coming. It, uh, it was only a matter of time with the the conversations we've had at, you know, at, at one goal around AI that, you know, we were going to be able to have a conversation together. Yeah, no, I've been, uh, I've been waiting for the invite. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, very special that this episode I think is going to drop, um, you know, appropriately on May 1st and the national enrollment deadline for, for students. There's going to be students all over the country that are making a very, very big, big life decision for them themselves at this point on that day. So it's exciting that we'll be able to, talk together about college access and, you know, the experience and maybe how to use AI tools on, on this special day for students. Yeah, no, I'm excited. And, and, uh, the, yeah, knowing that this deadline is a week away right now, as we record it, it's, uh, I, I, you just know all around the country, students are having like big conversations with their families, with their friends, with their loved ones, with their counselors. And like, there's a lot that goes into it and there's a lot you don't know. It's like always a big leap of faith. So there's a lot, uh, I, I, um, I have a lot of respect for where, where so many kids are at right now. Went and even where you and your own daughter are at right now. <laughs> so. I, I was going to say, we'll get to it. Cause we were on a tour on Friday, uh, at Simmons. And so it's just, it's very real, you know, it's very, very real. Yeah. A lot of emotions. Well, you know, like I was just saying, I got my, my one goal t-shirt on, I got my Trinity college Bantams, Add on, so I feel like I'm very prepared to just you know dig into this topic with you, knowing that it's a it's a very significant day across across the education field coming up and in a week or so here. And you know, again, like you said, this episode will, will come out actually on the day of the national enrollment deadline. So let's uh, let's maybe get into it a little bit. So I mean, I think first and foremost, we've obviously worked together now for for close to two years. It's been really great to just you know, work with you and, and collaborate alongside you as we work with high schools and we work with school districts and just the state as a whole with looking to improve student outcomes related to post-secondary enrollment, you know, and, and completion. So precisely this field and topic, you know, with one goal, but, you know, for those folks who haven't had the benefit of working with an awesome person like I have for, for two years, I'd love to just maybe start back a little bit initially and just hear more. How did you decide that you wanted to be in education and maybe how'd you end up at, at one goal? Yeah. Um, well, it's funny. I didn't start with sort of college access as my focus. Um, but it really, for me began with both my parents were teachers. Um, and so it was like the profession that I saw the most of, and their friends were teachers. And so I was just surrounded by educators 
um, as a kid, they were actually friends with some of the teachers I had in elementary school and high school. So I also saw sort of the connections there. Um, I have some very early memories of my father was a theater teacher in Boston. And um, I have some very early memories of like on days that I was sick and they didn't have childcare, he would just sit me in the back of the theater of the high school that he worked in while he taught. And so I like, I think some of those things were foundational. Um, I joke with people all the time. It's like, I didn't know what any of the other jobs were. Um, and so I think that like definitely like sort of pushed me in a direction. Um, but I think that also the other piece of it was that school worked for me, you know, and I know it doesn't work for every kid, but I actually like loved the kind of learning you get to do in school and feeling accomplished in that way. And so I think I always wanted to try to create that for other people um, and for other kids. And, and, and I had a belief that school could work for everyone, even if it didn't. And I wanted to sort of figure out how do you do that? Um, and then the other piece of it for me was that very early on, my first job in high school, I was in a youth development program in Boston called The Food Project. And in my first summer, I was like one of the youth that they were supporting. And then I got to be a counselor in training or an assistant crew leader and then a crew leader and sort of work my way through that. And so I think also just having early opportunities to see how powerful sort of educational experiences could be and learning experiences could be for uh, young people, like also was just a motivator. And so um when I got out of college, I knew that's the field that I wanted to be in. I wasn't quite ready to, I think, be a classroom teacher. And so I was able to work with schools all throughout New York City um, in this program called the Penny Harvest. And then through that, uh, ended up in Boston as a school leader at a charter school. And then um, in that work, our biggest mission was to really focus on preparing students for college. Um, and what we saw was even in a charter school setting where we could control the course trajectory and we could control the sort of academic program, the social emotional program, like all of the components of what we did, we still saw students go off to college and come back not finding success. Um, and so I think for me, that sort of opened up this whole thing about like, well, how are we counseling students? What does that transition look like? You know, we can't just say like, oh, once they graduate high school, we've done our job. Um, but really, what does it mean to actually prepare students for, for beyond high school, for success in college and everything? Um, and so that kind of brought me to one goal. Uh, and so I feel really lucky to now get to do that work, but not just with like a small school, but actually with the whole state um, and really thinking big picture of like, how do we actually change opportunities for young people to both dream up what they want for themselves post high school and actually make the plan to do it and find success in it. Yeah, thanks for sharing a little bit of that journey. It sounds like, like similar to myself, you've had this journey over your career of Kind of like finding your your niche along the way, right? First feeling like, I don't know that education's for me, but it runs in my blood. And there's every every kind of exposure opportunity I'm getting in life appears to be education related. And then being catapulted into a lot of experiences. And now now our paths have crossed right here at One Goal. So thanks for sharing a little bit more. Now this, as, as I've mentioned, and as we've already alluded to, this is a college access episode. So I'd love to also take a little bit of time to hear about your own journey, applying to, matriculating to college, how you went about that process. I, you know, before you maybe dive into that story a little bit too, like in a couple of words, like how would you describe or label your process? Was it, was it turbulent? Was it exciting? Was it straightforward? How would you, you know, how would you describe that? And, and what did it look like for you? So um, my brother is three years older and he, uh, I watched him go through this process when I was a freshman in high school. And it was, that was turbulent. <laughs> he, I think the truth of the matter is he ended up deferring for two years. Um, and he, he ended up reapplying after two years to, to schools. Um, 
And I think he never really wanted to go, but it was a back and forth because it was like, that's the thing you do. Like you, there was not a lot of space for alternatives at that point. Um, this was like in the nineties. So, um, he, you know, they're just like, my parents were like, well, you got to do it. So we're going to figure this out. But he really just didn't want that. And so for me, my, my goal was drama free. I didn't want, I didn't want that smoke. I didn't want that back and forth. I really went for more like the drama free route. Um, and, and my memories were, uh, you know, he handed me the like big book that they used to, uh, you know, Fisk's guide or whatever it was. And you'd flip through and you'd just read school after school. And like, I think the thing that I remember feeling was like, I had no context for understanding what was in there. Like they would tell you certain things like the rate of, uh, you know, like um, co-ed, you know, like how many students were identified as male and how many identified as female. And it was like, some schools would be 52, 48, and some would be 55, 45. And you're like, I don't know what that means, right? Or it would be like, this campus has 3,000 students and this campus has 30,000. But like, I couldn't picture any of that. And I think I knew that. Um, and so I was actually really lucky. I, I talked about working at the Food Project. One of my mentors there had gone to Oberlin College and she just kept talking about it. <laughs> and she would like, be like, oh, there's this Oberlin event. You should just come with me, I'll pick you up. So I'm like, okay, fine, I'll go. And it was like an alumni event. It was sort of like an exposure thing to like bring in you know, young people from the Boston area. So I went with her to that. She started getting, making sure like mail was getting sent to my house about Oberlin and like invitations to weekends and all these different things. So um, when it came time to like making my list, I just was like, yeah, I'll put Oberlin on there. And um, the, you know, there was a feeling like you gotta go visit as many, you know, a couple schools, which uh, I, I felt like was important. And so I went and visited Oberlin. Um, I had an interesting visit. It wasn't like the best, uh, but it was, it was fine. Um, and I basically said to myself, you know what, I'm going to apply early there. So I did early decision. I remember mailing my thing, going to the mail, you know, the, um, the post office before 1159 PM or whatever, getting a postmark. Uh, and then I remember distinctly getting that acceptance in December. Uh, and I was done. I got a little t-shirt in the mail. And the whole thing was over. And while all my friends were like sweating it out, I was, I was done and I had a plan. So um, it all worked out. And I can talk about my experience there a little bit. Um, but the short version was I really went for as little drama as possible. I submitted one application. Uh, I got in and, you know, was lucky for that and, and then didn't have to worry about it too much. Yeah, it sounds like you were able to just uh, capture and leverage the lessons of those before you to try to build out a process that at least had been a little bit more pressure tested than I think the typical high school senior, especially first generation, lower income high school senior kind of has going through the process. Even too, I love that, uh, you know, in, in your journey, you mentioned the fact that you were able to leverage this oftentimes not really well known, at least in typical public high school spaces, this, this early decision, early action option for applying to, you know, a, a private institution, right? Uh, folks oftentimes don't know that, among many private institutions, there's this whole different process beyond just a regular decision where you can submit an application. And if you do so, also, uh, you know, doing things such as showing demonstrated interest, which fundamentally means reaching out to your admissions counselor, going to an info session, just basically showing them that you actually care about the school and you're, you're very interested in not just you're applying and then they have never heard about your application or who you are at all for the six months during the timeline, doing some of those things within private institutions can actually really make a big difference in just your chances towards admission in a way that public institutions obviously don't do or can't do because right. of the way that those processes work compared to 
you know, uh, selective private admission. So already just love the fact that we're throwing some some of those little nuggets out there that we we've heard about and we know about. I think, too, I've never shared a little bit about my own journey going through this process, um, you know, with with listeners yet on this show. But I think very similar in, in some ways, similar to you and in some ways different. I um, didn't have necessarily like a person in my life that I could like take the lessons and learn from that in pressure test. I think if I, I think generally speaking, I'm the type of person that if I had that person, I probably would have done that. I would have been like, oh, this didn't work. This didn't work. But I know that I've mentioned to you many times just in our own conversations that in many ways, my college process is still the reason that I'm, I'm, I'm in this work. And I love being in the work of college access and persistence for, for young people, because my process was equal parts, very, very turbulent, but also memorable and right. And some of the the, the best initial moments of my life and led led me on in a in a four year experience that has completely changed the trajectory of my life. I know that um, I've mentioned to you also that when I was in high school, I was actually fortunate to be a part of like a college readiness type program, very similar to one goal um, that did actually place me in a class with a teacher who was like generally teaching us some of the types of things we need to know we need to do to be able to successfully apply to colleges, which, which was really helpful, right? Because in my, my experience, I did have my mom ultimately kind of like paved the way for our family and did, did actually go back to school end up graduating. And I'm very proud of her for that experience. She ended up doing that though, when I was already in high school and there wasn't a lot of like firsthand lessons, approach or advice that she necessarily could offer me that was going to help me on the, the journey that I was about to take as a student who was not only thinking about going to college, but also thinking about living on a college campus, right? Experiencing that as like a, like a 17, 18 year old, which is a fundamentally very different experience. And so I think her example was very important, but some of the just like tactical advice that I would have needed to like go through that. Oftentimes I was kind of like trying to work through my teacher or just figuring it out myself to do it. And, you know, in my own experience, even with all the advice I had, the broad stroke playbook messaging we were getting from the class to apply to some of the like public schools we had across California. So your UCLA's, your UC San Diego's, your Cal State's, all those great institutions, right? However, for my particular family's boat, given that we were just outside of the Pell range, the Pell Grant range, and mind you, Pell Grant is the grant for the lowest income students across the country. It's that free money that you're getting to do that. It provides at least a little bit of a, of a nest egg you can use to do that around $7,000 annually for you to be able to apply to your costs. I wasn't eligible for that. And oftentimes what they don't tell you is usually for public schools, if you're not Pell Grant eligible, there's sometimes like state dollars or other kind of free money that you'll also lose out on if you don't get that. So, you know, I was working really hard. I was very motivated to go to college and, and have that experience. My dream school is UCLA. So, you know, going through the senior year, I'm submitting applications. I ended up getting rejected from UCLA. So that was the first like real down moment at that point, feeling like, damn, like the place I thought I was going to go, I'm not going to go now. And then that was compounded with having these, getting accepted to some of these public institutions and then not receiving the, you know, getting these financial aid batter, letters back. And so thankfully, again, this is where some of the lessons I learned from my teacher actually did make sense because I was seeing things on there like what subsidized loans, you know, unsubsidized loans. And I actually knew what that meant. I was like, okay, I generally understand what this means. What I didn't see on any of these letters was anything that said grants or scholarships. <laughs> so I'm looking at these letters you know, they cost twenty two, $25,000 a year to go to some of these schools. And then I'm like showing up to my teacher like, hey, do, am I understanding this right? Is Am I understanding that they're only giving me $7,000 a loan to go to the school and no free money? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, are you, 
okay, well then I guess I'm not going to college. And so, you know, my fall semester was a, a low point in my life because I really wanted to go to college. I felt like I had worked really hard in my high school career to create that opportunity for myself. And I, I now was pivoting towards planning for a future in like a military branch, such as, you know, the Navy was the one I was thinking about because I couldn't, I mean, I couldn't afford to go and I wasn't going to ask my family to pay $22,000, $25,000 a year to send me to a school. And so that, that just wasn't an option. I then had a teacher who knew a little bit about my experience and what was happening, my circumstances. And he'd stopped me one day in the hallway his, and I'll never forget his name. His name was Mr. Kelly. He was my AP government teacher. And he was like, Hey, I heard a little bit about what's happening. I don't know if you've considered this, but if you haven't done so already, you should, you should look into applying to some private schools because sometimes they got money that they'll give students that public schools don't have. And I'm like, okay, well, up to this point, I haven't applied to private schools. I never really thought about that. I didn't, you know, we didn't really talk about that in class. So I was like, okay, let's do it. And so went home, heard about this thing called the common app, never heard about that before. Then I did some research on schools and, and, you know, I was like, well, I have, I, I probably have enough money to, my mom has told me like, we probably got a hundred, 150 bucks we could dedicate towards applying schools. Cause you had to pay fees at the time. I wasn't eligible for these application waivers, which, you know, again, is another unfortunate thing for either Pell Grant or, but, you know, those students who are just at, outside of eligibility, but don't qualify for a waiver and can't afford to just drop $500 to apply to 10 different schools and, and, and doing that. So I had enough probably to apply to about three schools. I was like, well, I really, really love history. I'm very interested in that. I want to help people. I think I'm really good at reading, writing, reading. I can see myself probably being politics or government in some way. Well, what are some of the best places to do that? I think the East Coast. I'm in California right now, but I, uh, it seems like all the American history is on the East Coast and Boston and, and D.C. and those. So did some research. I landed on Harvard, Princeton and Boston University. No context whatever on you know what it takes to get into those schools. I knew Harvard was one of the hardest schools on the planet to get into. I didn't knowing what I know now about how hard it is like, ooh, I might have changed my my playbook a little bit. No, I only had three schools to apply to, but I submitted three applications you know, as expected, didn't get into Harvard and Princeton. But then during my spring semester, I walked down to my mailbox one day, I open up that mailbox and I see a big old thick packet from Boston University. And I open up that packet and I see, congratulations, you're accepted. I was very initially happy, but then I'm like, oh, well, let's, let's see if my teacher was right about that financial aid part. And I start to look at the letter to the best of my ability. I noticed at the time it cost $53,000 a year. And I'm like, ooh, not off, not off to a good start. It costs twice as much to go here as it does some of these other schools, but then I also saw that they were giving my family about $48,000 of free money grants. I'm like, I'm, it says grants, so I'm pretty sure it's free. <laughs> and so that completely just changed, uh, you know, how I felt. I immediately ran into my house and I just remember having just so many great moments with with my mom and with my dad and feeling like, okay, I got it. Like I, I can go to school now. And, and it seems like this is a pretty great school and that has just completely changed my life. And so I know that very similar to you, like these meaningful moments have catapulted me into a career of, of college access as well. It, but also, you know, it's a, I mean, first of all, I, I love that we've known each other for two years, but I didn't know anything before the, like the mailbox moment. Like I know what going to be you has meant to you and like that moment in particular, because we've talked about that, but I did not know that whole other piece of the story, which is makes that moment even sweeter in so many ways. But it, but what's amazing to me is just just how arbitrary some of that is, right? If that teacher hadn't stopped you in the hallway, if you hadn't had that relationship with them, if they didn't know you in some kind of way, like would would that have even happened? And 
then you just even go to like, so you're doing, so you in your 17 or 18 year old brain are like, I should go to the East Coast because of all these reasons and randomly pick these three schools. But it, 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 you know, and sometimes it works out, which is great. But I just, I think about so many students like that to me is not a plan, right? From as like a, at a societal level, that is not a plan. Like we are lucky that it worked for you and that you have then turned this into your career. But had it not, I don't know, right? Like, I'm not saying, you know, your life would just be very different. Um, and that just, you know, it feels so fundamentally unfair that we haven't, we put so many young people in this position without giving them the tools. And then maybe some get them and some don't, but it's just, you know, it feels so arbitrary. And that just, obviously we know who that benefits and who it doesn't um, and who, and who loses out the most from that. So totally agree. And again, I feel totally confident also sitting into even some of the privileges I had within that context and it still wasn't enough, right? My mom is a white English speaking parent who, even though, you know, my dad, he came to this country at a very young age and he was predominantly Spanish speaking. I benefited from having an English speaking or a parent who could help me generally navigate some of these like weird terms and like, you know, make some bets as to like things such as what does institutional aid mean? What does, you know, like a, a Stafford loan aid can help me figure that out. I also benefited from the fact that I was in a college prep program, right? It didn't totally get me where I needed, but it got me further along than what I would have been had I had absolutely nothing. And you're absolutely right. I think that's why I've spent so much time in this field feeling like, man, that when you look at paper at the odds of like my chance of all those things happening, I feel like it has to be less than 10% of the likely <laughs> scenarios on this, you know, timeline of how it could have played out. And, and, and again, those, I, I didn't come into it totally with zero advantages. I came in with a couple of, of supports already in motion and it still wasn't enough. And then I think about, some of our young folks across the country who are, as, as you said, navigating this process for the first time, maybe don't have English speaking parents, maybe don't have citizenship like I did. And they're trying to like go through this process as well. And there's a whole totally different set of roles and experiences that they have to work through if they're in that boat. Um, maybe don't have a college access program where they have dedicated time every single day to like work on these things, think about these things, reflect on what they care about, what they're good at and all of these things. And now we're asking them to go through the same process. And so there's just so many <laughs> factors here, which make this process so tough to, to navigate for, for young people. Well, and you know, I, I think, you know, one of the things that one goal we talk a lot about is the degree divide. And so we're, and, and which is to a way of acknowledging the difference in post-secondary attainment between low-income students and high-income students. And I think when we talk about the degree divide, one of the, like, we always are talking about why sort of the difference between uh, you know, low income uh, student degree attainment and higher income student degree attainment. But, um, but I actually think the thing that we don't talk about enough in general is that actually, what does it take to get students from a low income background to even get in, let alone um, enroll, let alone persist and complete? So like the 22% nationwide that do that, that 22%, you have to know that those students have worked so incredibly hard and have like overcome so much. It's not even about like, how do we get, how do we, you know, catch up to the higher income students. But it's like, when you really think about everything that it takes to do that, and all of the things that have to go right for students, given how little we've actually sort of, again, like systematized this as a, as a society. Um, it's just, it's like each one is its own miracle, uh, because it is so challenging. There are so many barriers, and there's so many hurdles that uh, students face in, in trying to figure this out. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. And I mean, we're going to, we're going to, I think, get get even deeper into the weeds of, of this process in just a second here, but this is called the AI education conversation. So I do want to bring in some of that piece too, knowing that you and I can just sit and 
college access for hours and, and not waiver if, if we're allowed to. So um, I want to now bring in that aspect of this, right? Because I think I've had conversations with you and I think you and I, you, you, in, in some ways, I think were aligned with me that this, this, this whole thing called AI, which at least for me, the timeline of, of origin and, and Daniel's history is really January, right? Or that, that kind of starts feels like something totally different than technology that I have been exposed to that I think has the potential for our young people for education, for college access, um, than other talk, uh, technological milestones that I've been exposed to before. So I'm just curious to hear a little bit of, of your take on this as well. Like, how did you first hear about AI? What was your initial reaction? Like, what would have been a little bit of some of your experiences playing playing around with AI? Where are you landing with, with that technology at this point? Yeah, I think I, similarly, I, 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 I mean, I think AI was like some thing that was like in movies, right? Like it was science fiction. Uh, and then in January with ChatGPT, it became like, like reality in a different way, right? Um, and so I, I, I can't remember exactly what it was, but I feel like it was like, I saw some article or headline about like ChatGPT and, you know, the death of the high school essay kind of thing. Um, and so I obviously like just being in the field and, and curious, uh, also having a daughter who's a senior in high school, I was sort of like, what is this thing? Um, and so I started to just do a little more research and then actually like, uh, I think it was like on a Sunday morning, I just figured out how to get into chat GPT. Like, like, you know, or on those early days, you had to like register or something. I don't, I remember there was like a step or two to do it. Um, and then just started playing around in there and, uh, tried to really understand like what, what it, what it could do, what it couldn't do. Um, and, uh, and actually, and I've never told her this, but I, uh, sometime in January, she was working on a school paper. And so I like just kind of like stole the prompt and put it in because I was curious. And what it spat back was like, not bad, you know, like it was like, a, I think what I, I would say was like, it was like a D plus paper. Um, and like, and that was shocking to me to really see it in real time. Um, and so that kind of kept my interest going. And then obviously we were talking about it just on the side, uh, you know, at work and in, in, in other spaces. Um, and then I just continued to read up on it and it felt like the, amount of uh, reporting picked up its pace like really quick. Um, and so the times went from like, you know, an article here or there to like having whole, you know, sections talking about it um, and covering what AI and what chat GPT might mean for, you know, writing and high school, college, et cetera. And so, um, yeah, just like, I think I got swept up with the idea that like, this could actually be more disruptive to what we traditionally think education is than like, you know, many other things that I've seen before. And, you know, when you're in education for over 20 years, there's a lot of fads that come in and out. Oh, we do this now and we do that. But like, this seemed like without, you know, sort of having like a educational mission, it was actually going to upend what we saw as like traditional education uh, really quick. And so that kind of intrigued me. I'm always interested in disruption like that. And so that's kind of kept me, kept me interested in it. Yeah, I think that that, arc is like roughly this, the same of like what I felt. And I think some other educators have felt as well around their initial kind of reaction. It seems like everybody gravitated towards the case usage around like the essays initially. And maybe that's just because that was where the, the conversation was around. And then it, it, it continues to evolve to other places. I'm curious to just hear, is that have, have your maybe like thoughts or philosophies around this technology? Have it, have they evolved at all? Like to up to this point or are they like rough? Are you, is your headspace like roughly the same? No, I think what I've been really holding on to is like, 
if we let go of the idea, I mean, specifically on this, like this idea of writing, right? Um, we'll start there for me, at least, because that's where I entered it. But like, if we let go of the idea of like, part of what we are trying to teach are like the mechanics of writing itself. What does that open up and create space for? Because to, in my mind, what it opens up is critical thinking. It opens up like sort of like original thought and really like pushing beyond just sort of like a more formulaic approach to writing like the five paragraph essay half of what you get graded on is just can you sort of do the mechanics of it right like a topic sentence and a you know supporting evidence and how you cite it and all of that stuff and like that i'm not saying that stuff is bad like there's stuff you need to know about how that works and a lot of what that if you take that away what it creates space for is like but what about the thinking like and how are you how are you actually engaging with the content and the material how are you making meaning of it how are you thinking about that and then i sort of start to get into this whole new area of work which is like and how do you manipulate the machine right so like i think i saw somewhere early on a professor in florida or somewhere um was actually having his students create prompts that could go into chat gpt or a thing like that a program like that and I, and it sort of unlocked for me. It's like, oh yeah, now our job is not to have to write the essay, but it's to think about the prompt that gets to the best essay possible, right? And that is like a whole nother type of thinking. Um, and so I've just been really trying to like hold on to this idea of like, what does this unlock if we spend less time on that? Um, and I actually just tell one quick story because I think I'm predisposed to sort of this idea, which is when I was in college, I was, I decided to do an honors project in my senior year. And, Partially it was because you got basically, you, it was like a course, like I got credit for it and I didn't have to take an actual class. And at that point I was sort of like, it was, Oberlin was a small school. I was like, I've taken all the politics classes that, they, that we have. So let me do this project. Um, and it allowed me a chance to work with a professor that I, I really loved and had a great relationship with. Um, and so I did this over the course of the year. It was a pretty intensive research project. And I still remember like two weeks before graduation, I had handed him a draft. Um, and we talked about, we met and we talked about the draft and he, he really pushed me on like, what, what do you see as the next steps? Like what makes us a great paper, you know? Um, and so we talked about it and I gave some ideas and all of that. And he said, great. Do you want to do that? And I was like, I don't know. What do you mean? Like, you know, I, I guess like I have to, you know, I want to graduate. And he's like, well, all that remains really is the exercise. And can you operationalize the ideas that you've demonstrated to me in this conversation? He's like, I don't have to read that. It's up to you if you want to do that. And his point was like, it's the ideas that matter. Going back into the paper and spending another 10 hours to operationalize these ideas into the paper that was ultimately never going to go anywhere, right? It was going to sit in, on his desk or he was going to recycle it or whatever. He was like, I don't need that. I just need to know you can think about it. And I think that like that experience has like come back to me over the last few months as I'm like thinking about all of these like potential disruptions. It's like, what do we actually care about from kids? Is it about their ability to sort of like operationalize or like the mechanics of writing or the ideas behind it? And I love the idea that we could spend way more time on the ideas uh, than I think we normally do right now and sort of hopefully unlock like excitement for them, unlock the idea that like they can create original ideas, you know, all of that stuff that I think we don't often get to in most essay writing, at least in high school um, and, and a lot in college, I think, too. 
Yeah, I think to your point, if we are, are circling just the wagons around the, the academic essay for a moment, I think that's part of the reason why historically thinking about my experiences supporting students with the college application process, why I have generally really loved the personal statement aspect of the application, just because for a lot of students, it, I have noticed that it, it really is the first real opportunity where you can have these, in some cases, really tough conversations with students um, that, and I say that they're tough for two reasons. I think they're tough because number one, in my experience to do a personal statement while students, it requires like a really, really deep amount of reflection for students to really determine like what it is that they care about, what it is that they value, and what it is that they're they're good at and trying to take some of that essence and putting that in a, in a paper that is obviously like a real high stakes paper, right? Within the context, probably the, the most high stakes paper they have written up to this point in their life. So, but it, but the reflection piece is really exciting because you can also just see their growth along the way and how they're starting to connect dots in their life around their identity, around what they care about in a way that they may not have done before. It's obviously very easier when students have a great program like Wungle or another, you know, another experience like that where they have had many reps to just think about these things before getting to senior year so that it doesn't like all come at once. But beyond that, I think the other thing that I really love um, is that this essay provides an opportunity to, to do a lot of unlearning for students about how it, to your point of how it actually is that you can put together in a written format ideas, your creativity, your lens in a way that doesn't make sense. And I think one of the things that I'm very excited about just as a former English teacher, right, a former counselor um, and somebody who thinks about academic writing quite a bit is the fact that I think that, you know, we as educators, we in education, we are so... Uh, tied and, and connected to our, to making, I think, very complex ideas, very simple. And we, you know, educators love a good rubric, right? <laughs> Whatever possible, if there's mm -hmm. a way for us to create a rubric for something as a, as a means to like grading something and, and trying to provide some simplicity to, towards grading, we'll, we'll, we will take that opportunity. We have just been hardwired to do so. This to me is no more apparent than as you were describing in the five paragraph essay format, which if, if I say five paragraph essay, anybody listening to this, any student, any high school student across America knows exactly what I'm talking about, what that means, what are the basic body components of it. The problem is, is that when you think about intelligence, when you think about holding complex thought in a world, it's not as easy as that, right? And that's not the only way to write. Just because somebody can write a five paragraph essay well, that's actually not the type of writing. That's not the style of writing you're going to use when you graduate and when you are often in the real world, quote unquote, life after high school, life after college. And the suggestion that we're giving students that it's as simple as as long as you do this, like you've got it. That's actually I, it's, it's easier to do in the moment. Right. Because obviously, when you're a teacher, when you have limited bandwidth to be able to do that, I totally am compassionate and I get that aspect of it. But what I actually would rather us do is I would rather that we we sit with students in the messiness that is holding complex thought, holding sometimes conflicting ideas between this one student can write an essay that looks totally different from this other student. Both of them can actually be good. Both of them can actually execute the mission of, uh, you know, communicating very thoughtfully a, a transferable ideas. And it's okay that they don't look exactly the same in terms of structure. I think that's actually us engaging in a, in a process and a dialogue and in, in an experience that show students that there's not really like one way to get to achieve the mission it, and and in life you have to be able to hold very complicated ideas sometimes simultaneously uh within a lot of the things that you're doing and it's not as simple as there's not always a blueprint for things right sometimes it really is just about saying to yourself what is going to be the best way to 
communicate these ideas or these experiences with all of the pieces that I have and then giving them the agency to do that. And oftentimes I think in my experience, like I said, that, that unlearning, we have to do a lot of unlearning in particular for first generation low income students, because they're so tied to these structures that they've been, been taught and, and used again. And so they're oftentimes thinking about their personal statement in the context of that. And I really have to go in and say, look, if it doesn't make sense to do it within this because of your idea or your story, then don't do it that way. That's okay. Right. And eventually for a lot of students there, there then becomes this shift where they start to become energized by that freedom of it. Initially it feels, I think, very terrifying. It feels very tough to grapple with. You know, you can see their mind is expanding, but then eventually for a lot of students, there does become this point where like, oh, wow, like that's, that's, that's fun. It feels like the shackles were taken off. You know, if there's just like an element to it. And to your point, what I love about the ability to bring in now AI tools is maybe we can even stretch this further. Maybe now we can, uh, instead of even requiring some type of essay in a way, just like we did with these test test optional policies that were adopted across the admissions process during the pandemic. Maybe now, now there's an opportunity with these AI tools because of what they're doing with essays to now maybe say, well, maybe in, in addition to just an essay, we'll accept different mediums. What if a student wanted to record a podcast episode for their uh, essay and submit that? I think that would be pretty cool. I think it would show the same type of thought. It would, it would, it would get at this general mission that I believe higher ed folks are trying to get at, which is to learn who the student is, what they care about, and to determine if they're a good fit, both academically, you know, in terms of being able to handle the rigor, but then also in terms of just fit for their type of institution, right, to, to do that. So I'm just curious to also see how these AI tools may be able to change not just the, the way we go about constructing these things, but also the mediums in which we yeah. feel comfortable in doing so. Yeah, agreed. Totally agree. I mean, and I think like, I, I just would affirm like one of my favorite moments is when a student when you can see a student realize that they've been able to share who they are in their essay in a way that like means something like real to them, you know, and, and, and I, I always feel like in those moments, like one of the best uh, like things is to be able to like also just affirm that because I think one of the things about the college process in general is you, we set students up to feel like they're going to be lucky to get into school rather than schools would be lucky to have them. And so, it's like it requires a certain amount of vulnerability to put yourself into this essay and hope that someone sees you for who you are. And so those moments where they get there and you can say like, no, you just killed it. Like, that's a great essay. Like any school would be lucky to have you. And you see that that look of confidence come over them and like that feeling uh, come back into them around like, oh, yeah, I can do this um, and I belong, you know. So. I'd love to transition and talk a little bit now. You've, you've mentioned uh, a couple of times that in addition to your own journey, you now have, have an opportunity to take on a new, really important role in this process that of, out of the parent, what's, what's that experience been like? And maybe what is it, what has, what is it unearthed for you in regards to like potential challenges or blind spots that exist in this process for like the different stakeholders that participate in particular for parents? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, so, like, you know, it's funny because I, I've been telling people like this has been my day job for many years, right, working with students on this exact thing. And yet it is different when it's in your house <laughs> and it's your child, it's your daughter, or your son, whoever. Um, and so I think like one of the things it's really helped me remember um, in just living with this experience is like just how hard it is and how challenging and sort of like I would say like undevelopmentally appropriate it is that we ask 17 and 18 year olds to try to think about their future in a way that is impossible for them to imagine. <laughs> like we are asking them to imagine like and think about these characteristics of schools or all the things that they might want 
and like they are really locked in on their their current state right and that's sort of like developmentally appropriate that's where they're at and so um i think i've just also just had this moment of like man I, this is a hard thing we are asking for uh, of them um and 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 like that is not an easy thing and like um how do we show up and be as compassionate for them and through that as possible while also you know i'm like i want to make sure you take all the right steps you can take and i want to make sure you put your best foot forward and so you know those sort of like competing things um can be challenging i think the uh the other thing i realized through this process and my wife and i were like early on recognized that it's very hard to um both like parent your child who's senior in high school and lead them through this process and so we um, because we've both been in education for a long time, we have a lot of dear friends in the field, one of whom who's like an auntie to our daughter, uh, does college access work. Um, and so she just became Jenea's default college counselor. Um, and they worked closely together. And I think I bring that up to say, like, even with the expertise that I have, um, it, I can't, it was hard to do that and be a parent at the same time. Um, and so, and, and I think that, like, you know, it's also important when we think about it in a larger context, like, Everyone doesn't have that, um, but everyone really needs that. Like someone who knows them, has some trust, and can help them really push through all of these challenging parts of the process, creating your list, like imagining what you want to do, finding schools that fit to that, writing your essay, like working through deadlines, like all of that. And so I think like just uh, this process like helped me even remember, like even for parents that know the process well, that have resources, it really helps to have sort of someone else that can help play that role. Um, now we did a lot of work together and we spent Sunday afternoons refining her essays and uploading to Common App and all of that. So I got to do that stuff, but it really helped to have someone else like push some of those bigger conversations um, that you might not want to have with your parents. Um, and so you need that. Um, and, 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 and that's been, that's been an important part of all of this. Yeah, no, I appreciate that that reflection, and I and it, and as you were saying that, I was actually even connecting the dots between my own experience, where just in in over like my ten years or so, really doing this work of college access, I've been put in similar positions with younger family members in my own family, where you know I've learned so much, I've been able to understand the nuances of this process in a way that you know most like ninety nine percent of a, of the United States just does, doesn't even understand, and so you now feel like you have this playbook of, of, of how to be successful in these processes. And you want to just share it. You want to be as, as candid as possible with others. And the problem is, is, as you uh, acutely described earlier, is it's, it's not enough to have the information. There's also this like whole, whole emotional experience, this whole mindset experience, this whole experience of just like meeting also folks where they're at now that comes with it. And oftentimes, even if you know the information very well, even if you're communicating it to somebody there's, you really love that person clearly because it's like a younger family member in like your life and you have it, but ultimately they, they're not coming at it from the same place as you are in terms of just the information, the backwards planning, the knowledge. And then also, again, they have their own vision, interest, priorities, you know, that values, the things that they ultimately care about. And oftentimes that's, that I think to your point is something that is not heavily discussed in this process is that beyond all of the technical challenges that exist in this college application and matriculation process. Really what I mean by that is if we're thinking about it from like day one of senior year to like probably day one, if not a little bit, maybe like the end of the first week of your, you know, wherever you decide to enroll and attend, there is so many opportunities to like be set back 
along the way from the application process to the financial aid process, to not knowing how to do research on schools, to then actually submitting all of these things on time, to then if you have any type of unique circumstances, such as if you're from a single parent household, you're from a divorced parent household, you're undocumented or your parents are undocumented, right? You don't understand how to speak the language. And then, and then again, to compound that even further, we're really just getting into it here. Public schools versus private schools, they have their own different applications. Different public institutions across the state have their own different websites. So none of this stuff is like standardized and consistent, right? None of it. You have to like go and do like research potentially on 10 different processes if you're applying to 10 different schools in addition to just all of the emotional things that you're feeling. And that stuff is hard. <laughs> right. And you're trying to like just be a senior and have fun with your friends, right? Or yeah. like you're taking hard classes because you know someone told you, which is true, you should do that too. So you can demonstrate that to colleges. It's like you pile all that on. And I, the way I think about it is like each one of those things is an off ramp, right? Each one of those things is an easy way to get off that, like the path, right? Or the highway. It's like, and there's so many of them. That's why, like when I was saying before, uh, you know, the, the students that actually do even enroll, it's like you just know how much they had to overcome to get there um, because there are so many places where you could easily go off. And, I, and, and, and you're right, it gets more and more complex, like for each student, depending on their circumstances. But I think that people sometimes use that as a reason why um, it all needs to be one-on-one -on -one advising. And I think part of what also gets forgotten is that that is also a shared experience across all students at that point. And there's an a missed opportunity to build some community and connection across that. Because I think um, even watching Janae go through this, uh, like I, her friends were applying at the same time and she knew that and she was helping them with their essays and taking some of the stuff that we were sharing with her and her auntie was sharing with her and supporting her friends. But like, it's a very isolated thing, right? You think it's all about you because you have to put yourself out there in such a vulnerable way. Um, and you forget that there's an opportunity, like everyone's going through that at the same time. And we miss that chance to build some community and connection and support, uh, through that. Yeah. I mean, I totally agree. I think that's why I'm so proud to work for one goal and, and be at one goal, knowing that essentially the model that we partner with on, on school districts is providing exactly that opportunity, right? It's providing the opportunity for students starting in their junior year to be cohorted together in a classroom and to engage on these conversations around what they care about, what they're passionate about, and then taking all of these learnings that they've had and shared conversations with each other, with the teacher that have, has been with them since the very beginning, and then going through this hurricane of a, a college application process, going into the matriculation season together, but at least knowing that now that there's other people that are in their boat on the struggle bus with them versus feeling like, you know, how I felt, and I'm sure as, as, as you've described, many, many other high school students across the country can feel sometimes, which is, I'm in this by myself or they're ashamed to talk about it amongst my peers because what if I get into a school and my friend doesn't or what if they get into a school and I don't and I feel awful about it. There's there's so many feelings and um, tied to some of these things. And what I love about the college process beyond just like helping young people to self-actualize to this moment is there are so many opportunities that exist along the way for a very passionate educator for folks that are have gone through this to have these like lifelong conversations with young people about what they're feeling right it is okay to fail you didn't get into a school that's okay that's okay yep. right and just saying that and, and and what that actually does for a young person when you actually just say that for them being able to say in life when you fail this is what you can do next these are the options number one Give yourself time to just feel bad about it. That's okay, right? But then bounce back from it. What can you learn from this situation? How can you pivot your plan? It also reminds them that, hey, if you didn't get accepted to the school, 
world's not over. Maybe then life has a different plan for you. Maybe you were expected to go somewhere else. And I know that when I got into, when I didn't get into UCLA, I was, I mean, I was like wrecked for like a month, but ultimately, I mean, I was, I, I, I ultimately went where I was supposed to go. Had it not been for my experience at Boston university, my life would be completely, completely different. I never would have met my wife. I wouldn't, right. have, I wouldn't be married today to the person that I am, which would be a huge, uh, you know, life changer and, and be, you know, something that would be awful. I mean, I love my wife and I'm very grateful for it, but I wouldn't have met her if I didn't go to Boston University. And so there's right. just so many things that we can be teaching our young people about important life uh, mindsets, skills, being able to cope with their emotions that is going to, regardless of where they end up, very much accelerate their growth throughout life. That is equally as important for for the for the counselors for the teachers that are working with our students to have conversations with students about during this time. Yeah, and 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 the the only thing I'll add to that is because I completely agree is like, and the most important lesson to me is like, college just like life is what you make of it, right? So, um, if you if you could go to BU and have had a different experience, if you didn't, you know take different steps or volunteer for this thing or join this group or any of those things like you and same with like if you've gone to UCLA like you could have had a really bad experience or you could have made it awesome right and like I think one of the things we don't always we make it seem like it's the school that's going to make you happy rather than like what are the things you're going to do when you get there meeting people like joining clubs the classes you take like again, it's all about what you put in um, and, and what you, and in terms of what you get out. And so I think we just don't talk about that. We make it seem like if you get into the dream school or the right school, then everything is great, but that's not necessarily true. And I think we under undersell like how much of that is about actually just what you can do when you get there and putting yourself into it. Yeah, totally. And I think to reference something that you said earlier, when you had talked about getting into Oberlin and then transitioning to Oberlin, but then there were so many things that you had just never thought about that became very important in your experience. I felt exactly the same way when I went to BU. And I think a lot of students feel that same way. And the problem is, is that going through the reflection to really determine what you actually need to care about in a school, it, ta- it just takes time, right? Because I think oftentimes the way we frame college or post-secondary institutions beyond high school for students is that the things that matter most are like what you want to major in or just like the school components of it. And to your point, I oftentimes, when I'm approaching these conversations with students, I really, I will tend to ask them actually, what do you want? Like in your future home, that's the way I try to frame it because then it gets them to think a little bit more about like the social components that are equally as important. And and, and in my personal vision of what we should be doing for our young people is like every young person deserves an opportunity to go to an institution that is equally going to challenge them and help them grow, but is also going to have components of that, that experience that are going to feel like comfort, increase that sense of belonging, like a homewood for, for all of our students. And I think both of those things are important. When I went to BU, which BU, I, I didn't know at the time, is in addition to being a selective private, is also a predominantly white institution. So, you know, I'm this, I'm this young kid. I am half white. I'm half Latino from Southern California, grew up in a predominantly Latino black neighborhood. I'm now going to Boston University where I'm surrounded by a lot of international white students, not just that that are coming from different cultural backgrounds as myself, but also have significant, significant amounts of wealth uh, that I had just never been exposed to in my entire life, right? I'm, I'm coming from a middle, lower middle income to a lower class uh, economic uh, family household. And I'm now going to instances where, you know, my roommate is able to buy a Mercedes Benz as a fresh in his freshman year of, of college. He's paying for his room in addition to buying his apartment. And these are just things that my, my, my brain couldn't even comprehend. And we now have to 
also have conversations with our students, in particular, our students who come from similar backgrounds in marginalized communities of like what these experiences could be like and what what in those moments end up being important. And I know for me, in that moment, I never thought about like my identity, my race up at, at all up to this point. It had only been academic even for mine. But at that point, I found myself searching where, where are my Latinos on campus? Where are the folks who maybe are middle income and maybe have this shared experience? Because it would be nice to know that there's at least some people who have these like similar values and things that I have too. It's not to say that creating relationships with the folks that were different than myself isn't equally as important because it was. But then if that was my entire experience, I know that I was going to just find myself feeling like, man, there's nobody that's like me here, at least that I can really connect to from that place as one. I think both of those things were important. Eventually I found myself uh, pledging for a Latino fraternity at Boston University where a lot of the, you know, the young men I went through that experience with were from middle income households, really valued things that were important in Latino culture as well, such as, you know, food, family, the language, right? Being able to speak Spanish and that that helped provide that like sense of belonging nest I could go to in those moments when I needed to recharge. But then on a daily experience again, too, it was about taking the risk. It was about growing. I didn't come to Boston University because I wanted to be complacent, but it, it can't all be risk. It can't be all discomfort every single day at the same time either. It has yeah. to be a little bit of both. And I think that's what we need to start uh, teaching our young folks about is like, what are those things that help to fill your cup when you're taking those risks? And that obviously requires a, a little bit of a de depletion at the, at the, um, you know, for the benefit of growth. Yeah. A hundred percent. No, a hundred percent. And I think, like I said before, I think we, we, we task students with a really impossible thing, which is to think about something that is so different than what they've experienced prior. Like, you know, the, like, um, there's no way, 18 year old Daniel could have pictured what BU was going to be like. I mean, you were half, you were all the way across the country. <laughs> like you said, like the concept that a student at 18 or 19 was going to be buying a Mercedes, like that's mind blowing, right? And just at a, at a small level, like, and so, no, I, I, I think that, um, again, I think, you know, we, we come to this work through the one goal lens, but how do we actually have those conversations in advance so that you have some understanding and perspective going in? around what to expect, um, what it's going to feel like when you get there, what are some of the things you might encounter, both the good and the challenging uh, elements. And so like when we think about our the curriculum that we do with our 12th graders, like a lot of it is about that, right? It's like you might not really believe it until you get there, but at least we've talked about it. At least you have some framework or you have some language to help describe what that experience might be um, so that it doesn't feel as isolating and that it doesn't feel like Oh, I knew this wasn't for me, you know, and and um, and then students sort of turn away from it. Yeah, let's let's transition to talk a little bit now about how AI may be interjected in some of the experiences that we have and where we see opportunities to do that. So I think one thing that I have maybe crystallized in my mind more clearly at this moment and talking with you that I hadn't fully talked about before is I think you and I, based on what we just described, might be in an alignment that ultimately the the high level vision and role for AI and where the human components can play in is like if we can find if we can leverage AI in various capacities to simplify the process, some of the like technical pieces, what that opens up, it, it really it really allows the educator to be able to have exactly these types of conversations that we've described and walk uh, our young people through the social emotional experiences of this journey. So I would just say headline, that's like part of like what I've taken away. But I think if we're even now thinking more tangibly, have you thought at all about like particular moments in the college process or particular just like pieces in the in that that you 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 personally would have like felt like if there was an AI tool created around this component that would have been really helpful in my role as either a parent or my in my role as a college access you know expert that I'm I'm looking at now. Yeah, I mean, I think so. 
I come to this from, I've been thinking about this a bunch, but like, uh, you know, so, ma so many, many students, we haven't talked about this population of students much today, but many students uh, whom are wealthier will hire people to do all sorts of pieces of this process for them, right? And they'll pay a lot of money, right? So they're going to assist them on their essay. They're going to help them generate their list. They're going to walk them through the applications. They're going to keep up with deadlines, check-ins, like all of that stuff. And that's fundamentally unfair when you think about what some students have and what other students don't have. And so I think my brain goes to like how, what, what ways can AI tools be used to replace the like $500 an hour college counselor, you know, um, and provide that to students at no cost because it's using AI technology, right? And, and, and sort of democratizing that level of support. Um, so that to your point, the educators and family members can support around some of the social emotional stuff. Like, what does this moment really mean? Well, how are we supporting you through it? You know, what are the questions you have? What are the challenges? What are the ways in which we can show up for students during this process? And so, you know, I think there are some key areas, you know, I don't want to give away any million dollar ideas or billion dollar ideas, but um, no, but I think there's some key moments, right? Like helping a student um, go from, here's what I think I want to do to, starting to build out a list of potential schools that they can research, visit, you know, learn more about, et cetera. I think there are some obvious ways that uh, um, AI can support there. I think through the application process, even the Common App is not that straightforward. It's not easy. Um, like I sat with Janae while we did it and like you've, you thought you got through everything and then it's like surprise, there's a supplemental essay at the end. <laughs> like how can we help actually support students through that process. And I, and I have to believe that there are ways in which AI technology and chatbots and things like that can really sort of be, play that role in supporting students through the process um, better than they currently are in the Common App with their like sort of checklist system. Um, so I think there's a lot there. I think there's a ton that it could do around financial aid. Um, if you, you know, if we really, we could do a whole episode on the, you know, completing FAFSA uh, and the financial aid process and just like, how unclear and challenging some of the language is there for students and families to understand. Um, you know, even families that have experience with this stuff, like it's really, really uh, challenging. And I have to believe there's a lot of ways that AI could support around that. Um, and then the other one that I think is like very, very ripe for uh, like assistance is around the financial aid, like weighing financial aid offers and really understanding what is like, what would the impact of this be for me not just like, and my family, not just next year, but like for my life, right? Like if I'm gonna take on this amount of debt, what does that look like over the next 30, 40 years? Um, Cause I don't think we do a really good systematized job of helping students understand that. It's not in any college's best interest to help them do that. So they're not taking a lot of energy to do it. You really have to supplement like, and think about, play that out with students. Um, and that's tough, but I, I believe that that's an opportunity that would be right for AI as well. Yeah, I think generally we're we're in alignment on 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 some of those pieces. I think fundamentally to that last thing that you said around it not being in the college's best interest. I think you and I both know though that statement with the caveat that there are very passionate individuals at a lot of universities that do actually really care and want to help students understand those packages regardless of like the institutional. But to your point, I think what that statement also unearths for me is that like fundamentally the challenge with the college process and why some there are like so many pieces that feel disjointed is because a college or university is going to have a different different set of values interests and priorities for 
you know, inheriting the students that are coming than the high school does. And, and there's not just like perfect alignment. And I think that is like part of the reason, not the whole reason, but that is like one of the the root uh, causes for some of the like so many challenges we have. I think too, if I'm also throwing in the caveat that, and I think you this is like underneath what you were saying as well, which is fundamentally these systems just need to be simplified. Like I am very much like saying right now, very loud and clear to our state governments, to our federal governments, to colleges and universities, like these processes are too complicated and like we need to do better, right? We yeah. need to do better regardless of our AI tools. We need to do better. It should not be up to like an AI tool to like, uh, simplify and explain everything. Yeah, we will do that in the short term as college access professionals. We will play triage with our students, but these processes need to be simpler, right? Now, if we are uh, putting those caveats aside for a moment, I think what you said around like the particular moments really makes sense to me. I think if I, I definitely agree with what you said around financial aid, I've already, I know a lot of people have already asked me about like the financial aid award letter case study that I posted on my LinkedIn. I shared in a, pri uh, a prior episode where I actually use GPT-4 to like analyze a case study. I totally see to your point, um, iterations that could have made that even easier for me. I think knowing that GPT-4 is multimodal, if, if somebody is out there and uh, does actually use the API to put the image piece on there, and now, then, then now I can take pictures of just three letters and it'll explain one. And, and to your point, not just, it'll not only explain each one individually, but then I then can ask it, hey, which of these is ultimately the best, like the best offer? And then it can like actually give me a recommendation there. I do think that's like a pretty low hanging fruit tool that, I mean, I, I know you and I would definitely use like next year if we could get our hands on something like that, just because it would make even our workflows uh, simpler on that regard. I think if I'm also just throwing out like another nugget of uh, a tool that I think would be easier, more so approaching this now from our, our, higher, uh, our higher ed friends and something I think could be helpful for them. Oftentimes what I find during the like matriculation season, matriculation season, meaning like the month of April where our young people are at right now when they ultimately have to make a decision, Oftentimes, especially for first generation low income students, there there's a lot of like competing interests and values right now because right they may have gotten an accepted a great offer to an institution and now maybe mom or dad are coming in in a way that they weren't around before because maybe they didn't have the bandwidth they weren't mentally around it was up to the student to navigate and go through a lot of these things but now a student is deciding and that maybe there is some kind of financial commitment now the parents may be defaulting to like wait what is this you got accepted where you're trying to go where how much does it cost and it becomes like very, those conversations become very amplified this month and oftentimes i know just in in my own experiences working with students what then can happen is parents just being parents they're going to default to my child's safety their protection is number one and then for student it comes to like i want this opportunity but i also want my parents to be supportive of that so what that tend can that can tend to lead to is students ultimately saying no to a really great opportunity because their family like wasn't scrubbed in throughout the whole time and they didn't really know what was going on and then uh there just not being enough time so i see there being opportunities around it, when you then add this like other layer of sometimes those households are not English speaking. And then you now look at higher ed institutions and oftentimes they don't actually have folks at their campus who can't speak Spanish, Vietnamese, Cantonese, right? Mandarin, some of the, the language that are out there that are really critical for our students to be able to engage in. So I wonder if there are some like AI companion tools that can be built in around like this April time, maybe even going into the summer when that summer melt season happens, yep. when students have questions about, or their parents have questions about what they need to be doing. If they could be able to text with some kind of bot in their own language and they're getting responses back in their own language about things they need to be doing, questions that they have. I think there's a, there is a potential opportunity to do, to do some of the bridging there between students, their families in different languages and all of the like small things they need to do to like ultimately enroll in institutions that students are excited about. So that is like one 
low hanging fruit idea. Maybe I'll throw out there as as ways I think it could help. Well, no, I I completely agree, and I I I thought your case study was really powerful um, because it what it demonstrates is that like everyone doesn't have to be an expert in that. That we can outsource the expertise to the robots. And then what we can have the teachers and parents and family members and peers really support on is that social emotional piece. How do you make sense of what these options are telling us now? Um, but in, instead of spending all our time and energy on just trying to figure out, do I have the right answer here? Like, do I actually know what this looks or feels like? So I, I love that. I think the, um, the other thing that I think we have to look ahead to is like, as, as this plays out, people are going to get more and more used to getting, having a relationship with a robot or a chatbot, right? So let's start thinking ahead of what that's going to be like and think about what is the role that the chatbot can play in this process versus the human. Um, and I'll really think about, and what is the thing that is unique about the human experience that the humans can do, right? And so um, I just have to believe that like within the next bunch of years, it's not going to be a big deal for us to think about having a relationship with a chatbot that could help the whole college process. Um, and, and, and to be fair, there are examples already where people are using it for uh, applications and for um, summer melt and some of that stuff like already in our field. Um, and so people are, are really there. Um, I think it's still new enough that it's hard for us to believe that students will develop that type of actual connection and relationship to a robot in that way. But I, I think that's gonna be more and more real. I think we're gonna feel that in all different aspects of our lives. And so if we can look ahead to that, um, let's start building that stuff now. Let's making that, let's embed that in the student experience. Like let's support our college counselors that we know at the high school level are way outmatched, right? And outnumbered. So let's start trying to build those tools to help them, uh, you know, really focus on what they can, which is like sort of the students in front of them and what they need, what their stories are, you know, what their passions are, all of that. Yeah. I love, I love the fact that you brought that in. That's something I've had a couple of conversations about on prior episodes as well as like knowing that, Again, the, the, the chatbots we even have now are, are um, described and created to be able to talk to us in a syntax and in a tone that feels very human. And so knowing that this process is hyper emotional, it, I do think it means it is not far off to say, as, as you described and as others uh, described, that we will be entering an age eventually where people are creating like some type of relationships with these bots. I think what's, what scares me about that is especially in the college process is like, I don't want these imperfect bots with like information. And granted, this isn't even talking about like any of the type of like monetization components can happen there. I don't want them like misguiding students towards like particular universities that actually may not be the best fit for students. And there's like some ethical concerns there that I think can pop up. But to your point, like this is a conversation we need to have. This is a conversation we need to put parameters and frameworks around because in certain school contexts, number one, it may actually have to be that way because we still haven't seen that a lot of all, all of our school partners have the staff capabilities they need to like be have that. So that may, inevitably it just may have to happen, right? Regardless of how I feel about it and what my opinions are. But then uh, number two, by us having these like really, uh, you know, pressure test conversations, we can actually determine maybe to what extent we do want, because maybe there is a world where we, we walk through this journey together, we explore, we pressure test these tools to like be able to even do that level of conversation. And maybe we decide actually, oh, we don't, we don't feel too great about that. Let's try to use it to create all of these tools and let's like double down on the, like the, the people in schools to be the human kind of like folks to like determine that. So I, again, I don't know completely where I stand yet on that. I think I have some 
big concerns, but inevitably, if we don't talk about this, it's going to happen right underneath us. And then there are going to be people doing it, creating relationships with these AI bots. And like, at that point, it's going to be harder to like come in and say, whoa, 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 hold on. Like, here's the framework and all these things. We need to have these conversations right now, because really across education, that is going to be something I think that is critical for us to, to get into is like making sure we have some clear, uh, comfortable parameters around to what extent we actually want students, teachers, stakeholders to be forging relationships versus not what happens if, if that actually happens, what are some steps we should be taking to either step back from that a little bit or, you know, feeling like it's okay. So I do think these, this is really, really important that there's like a, a whole field hopefully that is being <laughs> developed around exactly these types of questions. Yeah. And, and I love that last point of like, or that, that main point about like, it, it will happen, but how can we control how it happens to make sure that it really is uh, to the ends that we want, right? Because you could imagine a world where schools just create their own version of that. But to your point, it guides students more towards that school. And it's just about like, who has the most resources, not what's the best fit or any of those things. So I think you're 100% right. We have to keep our focus on and our advocacy on like, how do we put students at the center of this experience um, and make sure that that's really how any of these tools are built out. Um, and, and that I could easily see it go a different way, especially because there's a lot of money on the table um, and that creates a lot of different incentives. Um, and so we just have to be like really eyes wide open about it. I think it's a really good, really, really important point for, for our field in general. Um, yeah, to your point, and again, the the intention in us saying this is not to like criticize our partner on the other end of the table. But again, if we're speaking very honestly, there there's a there's approximately three thousand institutions across the United States, and a lot of them do have uh you know staff in place who their their entire role is focused around like enrollment, right? Getting students to ultimately enroll in the institution regardless of the, the type of financial aid that they're getting to fill classes because they need students who are paying to like survive, to have their budgets. And so I, again, I say that not to criticize. I say that, that because that's the reality and it's important yeah. that we understand everybody's considerations and values before we are guiding our folks here. And, um, you know, as, and as we go through that process. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I could name drop, you know, 20 amazing admissions counselors. It's not, it's not actually, them right it's but the the incentives that are in place and because of some of the challenges both demographically about who's actually how many students are there to even enroll in those 3000 institutions now what it takes to keep them open and the money that they need it just it just is right and so even with like some amazing admissions counselors some amazing college presidents that have a vision like all of that it's still there is an economic reality that they're up against um which you know creates those incentives which makes it tough yeah well, Adam, I mean, this has been so fun and I, I'm Mike, I'm so fired up right now. I'm ready to just go out and like conquer the world. I feel like after this conversation and I'm sure that, Let's go. you know, you and I are going to have so many uh, future conversations around different topics here because I feel like we covered a lot, but there is just so much more to dig into related to this. But before we, you know, get off and go, I want to ask you one more question. I know that this, this entire episode was dedicated to, to college access, given you know the enrollment deadline again, big shout out to all the parents the counselors, the students out there who have made it to this point. We're proud of you. We believe in you. We don't take for granted that it was really, really hard work to get to today. Um, but just just to also give you an opportunity to, you know, put put the college access piece aside a little bit or to lean into it further and double down. You know, if you could wave your magic wand thinking about AI and remedy and uh, enhance, you know, some some topic, some challenge in education, like where's where's your magic wand going towards? What are you doing? Good question. I, you know, it's funny. So we just, you know, spent 45 minutes like talking about college access. So it's hard for me to shift my brain there. Um, 
I, it's, when I think about statewide, I, I will, I, I'm going to hold on college access for a second because, um, you know, I think one of the things that we've seen in Massachusetts uh, in a really good way is there's a lot of amazing work happening right now on sort of blurring the difference between K-12 and higher ed. So we have early college, we have innovation pathways, um, we have CTE programs that have existed for a long time, and many of them are modernizing to like catch up to new technologies and industries and all of that. And I think all of those are like a really very promising. Um, the question is, are they going to be able to grow fast enough to reach all students? And so I actually, I, I, my brain goes to like, how can, how could some of these tools help support both like getting students into those types of programs um, so they have an opportunity to really explore post-secondary or earn credits or credentials while they're in high school? Um, and also, how do we continue to support the students that aren't necessarily in those programs? And I, and I think there's a ton of uh, amazing potential here. And, and I want to just keep talking like you do um, about what AI could do for that. And like, and, and I really, what I would love is like to, um, you know, pull together some of the amazing people we know at the state and at districts and at schools to like think about this together, because I, I think it's, um, there's so much opportunity here. And, and that would just be a really fun conversation to have. So maybe that's a future episode. Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, you know how obviously, I mean, my role was partnership. So you know how big of a proponent I am of just bringing people together in different sectors and just letting them talk and engage. So totally agree with you. Adam, thanks for joining the conversation. I really just appreciate this. And I'll see you at work tomorrow, too. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. No, thanks for having me. And, and honestly, thank you for continuing to do this work and just explore this area and this issue, because I think there are like, there's so much unknown and, and there's so much potential. And I think you building this conversation, bringing people into it is like really, really powerful at a moment that like um, we're all still learning um, and there's so much opportunity here. So thank you for that. Thanks for listening to the AI education conversation. Give a follow rate and review wherever you listen for all show notes and to share your thoughts on today's episode, check out the AI at Convo on Twitter. See you next time.